right, hi everyone. Welcome back to Microcast, a production by the Texas Medical Center chapter of the American Society of Microbiology. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Aisha. Alex. And I'm Celso. And uh, we're here today uh, to cover an episode that's been in demand for a while. Yeah, so today we're talking about foodborne illnesses, and we're really excited about this because it's a nice follow-up to our previous podcast in which we talked with uh, Dr. Herbert DuPont uh, about just uh, uh, fecal microbiota transplants and or otherwise known as FMTs, and so we got to really know about all these different uh, ways of looking at intestinal diseases and diarrheal illnesses and so forth. And so one of the cool things about today's podcast is that it's the perfect uh follow-up because it'll help us kind of better understand everything we talked about in the previous ones and we'll actually we'll be able to discuss a lot of uh, recent cases that we've heard on the news regarding foodborne illnesses. Yeah so um, what are foodborne illnesses? So essentially they're infections of our GI tract which is our gastrointestinal tract but they have to be caused by food or beverages that contain harmful bacteria, parasites, viruses, or even contaminated chemicals. Uh, so our GI tract is anything that includes our stomach, colon, small, large intestine, and symptoms generally tend to be the same regardless of the type of illness. So people get sick with vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, fever, chills. Each year, 48 million people in the U.S. are affected by foodborne illness, so it's a big problem. 3,000 deaths annually, and the most common causes tend to be bacteria like Salmonella, Campylobacter, E. coli, Listeria, or a virus known as norovirus. Uh, so we'll talk, uh, just to get you all into this, about some high-profile foodborne cases to give you an idea of how bad it can really get. So in 2011, um, 33 people died, one woman had a miscarriage, and 147 people fell severely ill due to a bacteria called Listeria in cantaloupes. So we all like melons, right? We all love melons. And uh, whenever there's a suspicion of a foodborne illness, the, the story or the trajectory is usually the same. So multiple people around the country start getting ill with the same illness. The CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, gets called, and they're like the medical detectives that then conduct an investigation. So in this case, seven people fell ill in Colorado. Three people reportedly ate the same cantaloupes from Rocky Ford, Colorado. Other people then started falling sick in Texas and other states. The CDC talked to their families and traced it all back to a single farm called Jensen Farms in Colorado. And they figured out that these cantaloupes were being sold everywhere, so Walmart, Costco, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, and they all tracked it back to one single outbreak strain of listeria at this farm. And what ended up happening was all of the cantaloupes were recalled. The FDA discovered that what ended up happening was the food processing equipment at this farm was dirty and contaminated and had not been cleaned in a long time. The owners ended up getting criminally charged for this and pleaded guilty for neglect, but it just shows you how crazy things can really get. Um, now, the next case I want to talk about is something that hits close to home. We're in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm guessing, Alex, also, do you like Blue Bell ice cream? Uh, yes. I love it. <laughs> What's your favorite flavor? Oh, my gosh. I'm pretty plain. I'm just vanilla. Vanilla? Strawberry. Strawberry. Uh -huh. I could, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's wonderful, but also... Uh, the, the, the state ice cream of Texas, which is Bluebell, basically led to 10 severe cases and three deaths between 2010 and 2015. So this one was a really long, drawn-out one. It actually started when five people fell in in Kansas with listeriosis, again called spilisteria. All of them drank milkshakes made with Bluebell ice cream. More people got sick in Texas, Oklahoma, Arizona, 
And finally, they figured out that it was this Bluebell ice cream causing the problem. Bluebell recalled all of their products everywhere around the country, halted all production, and only resumed much later. There have been a lot more high-profile cases where a lot of people have gotten sick. 2009, 714 people got sick and nine people died from a salmonella outbreak, uh, from something that we eat every day for breakfast. Do y'all want to guess what it is? You put it in a sandwich? Cheese. No. Ham? No. It's a spread. Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise. Peanut butter. Oh. I know. Oh. 700 people. Peanut butter. In 2011, oh. uh, Cargill recalled their ground turkey due to an outbreak causing 132 illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in, I mean, it, go, it dates back. 1993, hundreds of Jack in the Box customers fell ill from eating their meat that was contaminated with E. coli. Yikes. And that was interesting because that actually led to the government introducing stricter food regulations. Um, and somehow the food chain still survived, which is pretty impressive. Uh, 2006, Taco Bell had an outbreak no. associated with E. coli. <laughs> Lettuce, 51 people were hospitalized. Eight suffered from severe kidney failure. And in 2015, my favorite, close to my dear heart, Chipotle, had no. two outbreaks. <laughs> Um, <laughs> a larger one associated with 55 people from 11 states being infected. This was E. coli, and this was an E. coli that uh, makes sugar toxin. And I think, you know, Celso's going to talk a little yeah. bit about how they actually do this. But And another smaller outbreak infecting five people. Um, and finally, uh, viruses can do this too. It's not just bacteria. So in 2003, a Mexican restaurant in Pennsylvania called uh, Chi-Chi's <laughs> was associated with a hepatitis A outbreak. Oh. 555 people contracted hepatitis wow. A, including 13 people that worked there and ate there at some point. And they, this is actually interesting because they figured out it was green onions at the restaurant that they used to make free salsa and chili con queso. Oh so everybody God. that ate there at that point got sick because it's free food. Why yeah. wouldn't you eat salsa, okay. right? And that's just an example. So clearly... Uh, and actually, this chain was completely shut down. So smaller chains like this don't recover. Um, but, you know, Jack in the Box, Taco Bell, mm -hmm. Chipotle still around. Yeah. Uh, so, Salso, can you tell us a little bit about how food can get contaminated in the first place? Actually, yeah. oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. before that, I do want to bring up two very, very recent oh, cases. Oh, right, yes, recent cases, yes. Of foodborne illnesses that you probably heard in the news in the past three months. The first is romaine lettuce. I know <laughs> I saw this first on my Facebook feed. Um, people were freaking out because there was um, lettuce contaminated with E. coli from Yuma, Arizona. This spread to 36 states and cost 36 states. 36. Okay. And cost at least 210 reported infections, 96 hospitaliza hospitalizations, and five deaths. <gasps> and an interesting story, a personal story, is I went to the airport. A couple don't tell me you ate it. No. Okay, yeah. good. I was like, yeah. I don't like this personal like, story, Alex. I was flying to New York um, <laughs> two months ago, and I, at the airport, I saw I was buying a chicken wrap that had romaine lettuce in the ingredients. Mm -hmm. So I knew I shouldn't eat that, but it is everywhere. <laughs> right. Which is why I guess it that's is such what makes deal. it hard because when you just yeah. hear that lettuce are contaminated, how do you possibly know yeah. if your lettuce comes from like that one farm in Arizona? Exactly. So, yeah. but you just, I guess, you got to be careful. Mm -hmm. And another case that happened a couple months ago was salmonella in eggs. Um, eggshells from Seymour, Indiana was infected with salmonella bacteria. This spread to 10 states and caused at least 45 reported infections and 11 hospitalizations. So, Celso, do you want to talk about um, how you can contract um, um, foodborne illnesses? Or I guess at what point can food even get contaminated? Yeah, in the first place? no, so of course 
all of us are probably more familiar with the later stages of the of the food process meaning well when we go to the store we buy it and then we cook it at home or whatever mm -hmm. but you got to remember that your food comes from comes from a very long your food goes through a lot before mm -hmm. it ever gets to the store mm -hmm. and so first it has to be grown mm -hmm. uh it has to be harvested uh for certain types of food it has to be uh slaughtered mm -hmm. uh processed stored and then shipped mm -hmm. so so a lot of hands yeah there's <laughs> a lot of uh, manipulation that it goes through before it can even um it can even make it to your plate and even during say the growth phase you know one of the things that commonly happens actually is say uh the chickens when they lay their eggs if they if the chickens uh, the, the, of course we know the chickens will sit on the eggs to keep them warm but unfortunately during this process fecal matter also from the chicken also can get on the mm -hmm. on that the is eggs heartbreaking itself. <laughs> it is heartbreaking because they're doing something very it's just sweet, a chicken but, trying to trying yeah, to lay trying an to, egg exactly but unfortunately if and this is why it matters a lot if the chicken is, itself is also healthy because mm -hmm. if it's unhealthy then its fecal content will contain uh, uh, harmful things mm -hmm. uh, and even if say th this is all fine it goes on to a har being harvested or slaughtered as you know there's a lot of people here especially in Texas where you have a lot of hunters and whatnot mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. you know that the temperature matters a lot mm -hmm. when you're processing your food as well and so anytime you might have whether it be an employee uh, that this slaughter facilities or what have you who might be sick or mm -hmm. or for whatever reason something's not working properly and the temperature gets to be at a range that what that does allow for harmful bacteria to grow then of course that's another possible stage of contamination but regardless uh one thing that often happens is just that even if everything makes it all the way just fine up until the end up until when we buy it mm -hmm. we can also be very careless with how we keep it within right. our own homes and so unfortunately that that's another very lethal stage of contamination right there and and yeah and unfortunately what one thing that can really happen is that once this food is contaminated, this is then on what leads to the main route of infection for foodborne illnesses, which is known as the oral fecal route, or you might also hear being called the fecal oral route. And <laughs> either the, way, yeah, whichever either direction way, that whichever goes. Whichever direction, and, <laughs> and this will become clear as to why it's such a cyclical thing soon, because the fecal oral route just refers to uh, once you ingest the contaminated food or contaminated water, it's capable of making it to your stomach. Mm -hmm. Now, typically, your stomach contains a gastric acid that would normally uh, kill or inhibit any pathogen that might make it to, uh, to in, within, within your body. But unfortunately, the pathogens that, we, that we've come to know because of their association with foodborne analysis, such as Shigella, Salmonella, E. coli, uh, or any of these other pathogens or other viruses, they what they do is they have these cellular mechanisms that allows them to survive in these acid conditions mm -hmm. and so what this allows them to do is it allows them to make it all the way through and go into your intestines wow now depending on the pathogen we're talking about they can either just stay in the intestine they'll colonize the gut mm -hmm. and induce all the inflammatory response of your body sort of responding to this mm -hmm. new harmful thing in your body and the formal symptom that we're familiar with, of course, is mm -hmm. the diarrhea that right, ensues. Right. So the common GI, yeah, vomiting, the, diarrhea. Exactly, vomiting, diarrhea. Abdominal pain. Mm -hmm. Other pathogens might actually even be able to make it out of the gut and go into either the lymph nodes, the liver, the kidney. Right, uh, so they the can disseminate yeah. and exactly. become way more serious mm -hmm. than just and, a GI illness. And that's whenever yeah. you have these really harsh symptoms. And right. so, but as I mentioned, you know, the formal symptom that we're familiar with is the diarrhea or mm -hmm. vomiting. And so when this happens, of course, you're now releasing these harmful bacteria to once again be able to 
potentially contaminate mm -hmm. food again right. and once again go through the ingestion right. process that I just described. And that's why, you know, you can right. say the oral fecal route or the fecal oral <laughs> right, route. Right, right. Because it's a Because it's a chain of transmission, chain. right? Yeah. And that's something with infectious diseases mm -hmm. in general. Like yeah. once someone gets ill, you know, especially with GI illnesses, it disseminates fast because we are contact people and mm -hmm. we touch yeah. each other, we touch things and we yeah. touch food and we cook food. So mm -hmm. even if we contracted it from a, f a food item that's been contaminated at the store, once one person gets it, I guess and that's why you know CDC conducts these investigations mm -hmm. because it matters who you've maintained contact with yeah. because they exactly. could get infected. And that is why employees need to wash their hands Absolutely. after using yes. the bathroom. Right. Absolutely. That no, is the law. Of course, <laughs> the, the issue with a lot of this thing, too, is just the, the, it's, it's, it's very difficult to do whenever you're, say, you're a caretaker and so forth, because you really are in this high-stress environment. You're, you're working with right. multiple patients and so forth, and you do often, depending on your position, of course, you, you will come across fecal mm -hmm. content or vomit or mm -hmm. what have you. And so, you know, you really do have to take that extra step to be mm -hmm. more hygienic just as much as possible. Right, sanitation. Sanitation is just going to be impossible. And, but also, you know, just not just uh, uh, caretaking like nurses or not, you also have to uh, really take into account mothers might, or fathers as well, like anyone that will be taking care of a baby that might be going through, uh, or a child, a young child that might be going through uh, these diarrheal symptoms, mm -hmm. they're being exposed, they're going to have to, you know, whether it be changing the diaper or just, uh, you know, right. cleaning up after them. You're also now your hands. Uh, you're also exposing yourself to it, right. so you also have right. to take that extra step to not potentially harm others that might be in your household right. or others you might be exposed to, or even just yourself. Right. So it's really important that right. we take into account the process, the importance of sanitation to it. Right. And that's a very good point because, for example, for listeria that was in Bluebell, um, that can cause life-threatening bloodstream or brain infections in children. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for parents to make. Make sure your household is sanitary mm -hmm. and free of these foodborne illnesses. Yeah, and I think um, an important point, I mean, we're all uh, microbiologists here and scientists, but, you know, as an infectious disease scientist, something to keep an eye out with all infectious diseases is, you know, fevers, chills are a common common symptom in all cases that you have an infection. Mm -hmm. But when Celso said, with added on top of all of the GI symptoms, which are super common, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, that could be extremely serious. And if that persists for more than a day, we all strongly just suggest getting some medical help because mm -hmm. it could escalate quickly to dehydration. Severe diarrhea could be severely problematic. Yeah. And especially in a child, like Alex just said, it could disseminate really fast and get dangerous. Mm -hmm. So seeking medical attention with an actual physician and a health provider is extremely important. Um, and Alex is gonna talk more about that stuff later. So um, I guess um, at this point, you know, something that we that we always look for is how are we going to catch things in food? Mm -hmm. So Celso just gave us a debrief of how can things get contaminated, but how are we going to find it if it's actually in our food? Now, interestingly, there's a few ways uh, food inspectors look for contamination. I mean, it really depends on what they're looking for. Uh, so they actually test for everything. So we're really focusing as, you know, infectious disease. Uh, our focus is infectious diseases, so we're talking about bacteria, viruses, and things like that. But food could be contaminated by chemicals, too. So things we worry about a lot are actually pesticides. Yeah. Um, things in the farm are sprayed with all sorts of stuff that could be extremely dangerous. Antibiotics. Mm -hmm. A lot yeah. of residual antibiotics coming mm -hmm. in from poultry farms and things like that because they've just been pumped with antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Growth hormones. Um, also super dangerous to us. Something that animals are pumped with. Um, dyes in fruits and vegetables. Things we don't really think of. 
A lot of dyes are added to give uh, fruits and vegetables the color that is the most appealing, very harmful for us to be ingested, and a lot of other harmful chemicals. So these are normally detected by a technique called mass spectrometry, uh, which we as scientists use all the time. But basically, it just allows them to look for things that they know will cause issues. It's called targeted screening, but also look for other contaminants that might not be identified. So essentially, you just look to see if there's any chemicals present that are not supposed to be present in food. And that's normally how they screen for chemicals and pesticides. Now, if they're looking for living things, or in the case of viruses, um, they can look for bacteria that commonly contaminate food also. And in that case, one way to do it is to look for things that bacteria make, like toxins. Mm -hmm. So E. Yeah. coli makes shigatoxin. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of bacteria secrete things. Mm -hmm. And so there's indirect assays of like ELISAs, which basically is just a method for you to detect if this particular toxin is present in food. And another way to do it is to detect if there's certain proteins that are present on the surface of commonly found bacteria. Mm -hmm. um, and those are still indirect methods. But the latest technology is now all moving towards one thing, which is PCR-based techniques. Mm -hmm. So PCR is a polymerase chain reaction. But it's just shorthand, but it's essentially an easy way to look for genetic material. Mm -hmm. So it's a way to detect if there is DNA from a bacteria or even a virus in your food. And this is the most reliable way to truly test for contamination because it allows you to test for levels as low as one cell per 25 grams of food, wow. which is extremely sensitive. Whereas mm -hmm. all of the other indirect methods, like let's say you have bacteria. Bacteria are really clever they could be dormant and not be producing that toxin, yep. right? Because bacteria, like you know, Celso yeah. said, they are, their mechanisms of infection are very complicated. Mm -hmm. So they might produce virulence factors to cause infection, mm -hmm. might not. So to look for these indirect things can be usually how things go under the radar. So to look for DNA is probably the most accurate way to do it. Um, in terms of, and normally, you know, we're always looking for things like salmonella, E. coli, listeria, enterohemorrhagic E. coli, and all of these things are things that they keep an eye out for. In terms of the FDA, interestingly though, they don't actually have requirements for food companies on what kind of technique they have to use, mm -hmm. uh, which is something people are lobbying for now because of all of the outbreaks like Alex just talked about, the most recent ones especially, people are pushing to use standardized PCR-based techniques. That's good. Um, so all they really have right now is regulations for how clean they want the food to be, which is like, oh, we're okay with these many organisms per gram of food. Um, as long as it's not this particular bacteria, you know? So they just kind of set the guidelines, yeah. but they leave it up to food companies and processors and inspectors to decide what best technique to use. But I guess as scientists, I personally think the PCR is probably the best way to go. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know yeah, about y'all. Yeah, the safest one for sure. Yeah, the safest one yeah. I'd say. I think the question that some people might have is, can you really, can you use PCR-based approach to um, test every single food that you're going to buy in the market. So like, right. if there, there's so many fruits and vegetables out there, can you really test if there's bacteria in every one of those? Or so how fast and how effectively and efficiently can we do this? Actually, yes. So PCR-based methods now, there's a lot of companies uh, that are developing these really advanced platforms that make it possible for you to get a very little sample size of whatever you're testing and mm -hmm. just go from there. Um, and it's probably a lot easier than looking for, like I said, toxins and proteins and stuff because you need a threshold for those things. You need a certain amount of toxin mm -hmm. to be present. It's called a limit of detection. Yeah. And if, if it's not, you know, if there's not enough present, you're not even going to get it. But with PCR-based methods, because the whole idea is to amplify DNA, so mm -hmm. as long as you have a little, you should be able to take it. So yeah. I think it's probably the most reliable method out there right now. And, but with smaller like farms or like 
right how accessible is it right that is the problem so right now they're trying to make it as affordable as possible so i think they're taking these techniques and trying to make it affordable um so right now for for i guess bigger chains it is super easy to do things like this Mm -hmm. but for smaller you know local sourced farms Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. will stick to some of the more indirect methods um and usually what happens is you know companies themselves don't do this farms don't do this they will Mm -hmm. contract they will have other licensed companies that have all of these technologies come into their farm sample everything Mm -hmm. including the processing equipment so you know they will take samples you know right out of the grinder or right out of wherever they're you know slaughtering their animals and test for that so really it's a method of outsourcing this and trying to make it as affordable as possible even for smaller more organic local source farms to be able to do it yeah and foodborne illnesses are just so um I mean, we need to remember that they can be very localized, uh, like sort of like these contamination events. It doesn't, it's not always going to affect 36 states. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can just be a very localized event. And so I think that really just sort of highlights the importance of us as the consumers. Obviously, I'm not expecting everyone to have PCR at Mm -hmm. their homes to Mm -hmm. be testing everything. But it goes back to, uh, to what you mentioned where chemicals might be on something like fruits or whatnot so you know you want to be careful with how you sort of process your own food like right. wash your food right right you know, well like, i guess I yeah mean, i mean you, you know, know alex do take all of these extra measures to really do things correctly and i think that that will ju- that will just you know on top of the steps being taken prior to you buying your food together that can definitely like inhibit or at least decrease the likelihood of foodborne illness taking place. And I think that's a great segue. So I mean at this point we've told y'all about all of the problems that are out there and probably Mm -hmm. scared you a lot. It's a dark world. Um, It's it's scary but you know there are simple things that we can do that I think you know Alex can tell us about uh, about how we can prevent this from happening to us and be more careful. Mm -hmm. So these are guidelines that were recommended by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC. So to prevent foodborne illness, illnesses at home, um, there are mainly two categories that people are mostly concerned about, which are eggs and fruits and vegetables. So for eggs, um, eggs should be cooked until both the yolk and the white are firm, and scrambled eggs should not be runny. And it's very important to wash your hands and utensils that come in contact with the raw eggs with soap and water. So wait, so... So what if people like their eggs like sunny side up? Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> so that's that, the first thing I thought that about. That is always a risk. If you okay, do so like it sunny is. side up right. eggs, that you are taking a risk right. of contracting these diseases. Exactly. Well, okay. and I, I mean, restaurants have that at the bottom of their menu. You know, they yeah, say they, if yeah. you are going mm-hmm. to consume raw fish or shellfish or raw eggs, mm-hmm. just know that. Yeah. And you just have to be aware, like yeah. Alex said, right? Mm-hmm. For fruits and vegetables, um, you need to, of course, wash all fruits and vegetables in running water before consuming. And it's very important to refrigerate your ve- your fruits and vegetables at low temperatures below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and to keep it away from raw fish and meat. And okay, so that- keep it away from raw things. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And that's very important in places like Texas, where we can reach 105 degrees mm-hmm. during the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If your food is not refrigerated, it can very easily be contaminated. And if you do refrigerate your fruits and vegetables, and if they're cut or peeled. Um, you should do it within two hours of preparation. Right. Yeah. And I guess anything else in terms of we things that we do in our daily lives to, to take more precautions? Well, I guess just, uh, I was just going to add to what Alex was talking about. Just uh, we are in Texas. I mean, we're in the South, so there's a lot of people who go hunting here. And fall is hunting season. Mm-hmm. So one thing that he was mentioning, the temperature, uh, the, the, the impact of temperature on taking care of your meats and whatnot. So... 
Uh, the USDA actually has a lot of really great recommendations for hunters, uh, as well as just uh, the general population uh, on how to better take care of, because meats are very, very prone to being contaminated mm -hmm. sometimes, depending on how you take mm -hmm. care of them. Mm -hmm. And so the USDA has some really great recommendations for how to go about doing that. And so they do mention that, as Alex mentioned, you know, keep it below 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And what they advise hunters to do is to one uh, once you make the kill to basically just process it as fast as possible mm -hmm. um, within the chest and abdominal cavities if you can put bags of ice in there just to really cool down the carcass as fast as possible as well like and it's it's, it's just it's one of those things where you may think it's very a very mind it's, it's kind of like an inconvenience or you don't you don't really see okay well how am I supposed to do all this and carry ice with me do all these different things like that but at the same time, I mean, it will save you a lot of trouble because, as you know, medical bills can be very expensive. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the last thing you want to do is have this amazing experience with family, and then all of a sudden, you're racking up thousands in bills uh, mm -hmm. because of that one step you decided not to take. Mm -hmm. So it so so yeah, it can be very. It can be not just an uncomfortable experience, but it can also be a very expensive one. Yes. Right. And I think that's a good transition to another point that I wanted to make, which is if you do contract a full-born illness, then what you should do. Mm -hmm. So this is also a recommendation from the, center, from the CDC. So at home, the biggest um, threat is, is dehydration mm -hmm. due to vomiting or diarrhea. So the signs of dehydration are um, excessive thirst, infrequent urination, dark colored urine, or faintness. And if you leave this untreated, it can cause organ damage or shock, mm -hmm. which is a very serious problem. So if this does occur, you should drink plenty of fluids, especially fruit juices or sports drinks, mm -hmm. a lot of electrolytes. electrolytes. Mm -hmm. And you should avoid fatty, fatty foods, um, dairy products, caffeine, and alcohol, of course. <laughs> yeah. And once you feel better, you can gradually start eating easy to digest foods like rice, potatoes, bananas, and bread, um, a lot of carbohydrates. And you could also buy a lot of counter drugs um, that can alleviate diarrhea, like Pepto-Bismol mm -hmm. or, or Imodium. And, if you, and once you go to the doctor, physicians will prescri might prescribe you antibiotics if specific. Right. Um, if yeah. they'll most likely just, yeah. yeah, they'll most mm -hmm. likely culture things and try to figure out what you have. And if you do have a bacteria, then they mm -hmm. will prescribe you antibiotics. But that is also an important point we always love to make. If you just have antibiotics lying around at home, please don't take them, even, yes. if, yeah. you, even if you have that abdominal pain, because mm -hmm. it might not at all be bacterial. A lot of viruses contaminate mm -hmm. food and could cause GI illnesses. So go to a healthcare provider. Yes. <laughs> Only if you're diagnosed with a bacterial Correct. infection, you should take antibiotics. Remember, we talked about how these bacteria, they're capable of making it through your stomach and into your intestines. Mm -hmm. And once they colonize it, that's when they can really do a lot of damage. Right. Well part of how they are capable or they're further allowed to do so much damage it is really unnecessary on, antibiotics. Yeah, it exactly. really depends on uh, you, you have other bacteria, as you, mm -hmm. you guys are probably familiar with this, the microbiome. You have other things in your body that are typically there to help you uh, to, to inhibit these incoming pathogens, not just your stomach right, that is right. your line of defense. I right. mean, even in your intestines, you have right. a lot of immune cells, you have a lot right. of things in there that are trying to fight this pathogen off. Mm -hmm. So you just using this antibiotic um, just without any proper understanding of what it is that you might have or whatnot, you may actually do damage to some of the, some of the microbiome components that you might have that mm -hmm. will typically that help you prevent like this, this, yeah. uh, this infection from really mm -hmm. taking place. So that's why it's always best to just go to an expert and just familiarize yourself a lot more with what you may have and so that in future events, uh, you can be better prepared. Be better about mm -hmm. it. 
And I think, you know, any, any last parting words about any last things that we have to say about yeah. poop before we, pro- this is probably going to be our last episode and related to anything feces related. Um, we make no promises. We might loop back around to this I because it's such a cool topic. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it, we might do another episode down mm-hmm. the line on the microbiome more specifically. Yeah. Uh, we did talk topic. about, you know, fecal, mm-hmm. uh, fecal, fecal transplants, body. but to actually talk about the extent mm-hmm. that the microbiome impacts our entire body. It's amazing. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So we might cover topics like that. But for now, I think, I think we're good. Hopefully we've given you a pretty good overview of what foodborne illnesses are, what to keep an eye out for. Um, and like Alex said, how simple things that we can do at home and be aware of can help uh, prevent exacerbating the problem. And with that, thank you from all of us for listening to Microcast, and we hope that you will join us next time. Mm-hmm.